Hello and welcome to the Free Marketers Podcast. I am Ralph and we've got a man in car here today as well. Uh, so today we're going to be covering the Classical School of Economics once again. So last week we did Adam Smith and we looked into the wealth of nations, the invisible hand and various key concepts in classical economics, such as incentives. This week we're taking a turn and we're actually treating you, I guess, somewhat this week as we're covering not one but two economists, that being Thomas Robert Malthus and David Ricardo. Um, so these are two economists we're covering today, and they are very key players within the classical school. Um, so, uh, Aman and Cara, would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Cara. I'll be giving you a bit of background into Malthus. Hi, I'm Aman. Um, I will be a bit of a background into Ricardo, looking into his sort of the theory of comparative advantage and, and just looking at his contributions to the classical school of economics. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, that's great. Um, in that case, uh, Cara, would you like to give an introduction on Thomas Robert Malthus? Malthus was an English economist specialising in political economy and demography. Uh, he was born in 1766 and raised in an academic environment where he was given a liberal education by his father. During his early years, Malthus interacted with many influential and controversial intellectuals. David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau were close to his family and he was educated at school by Gilbert Wakefield. Hume was believed to be, at the very least, agnostic. Rousseau in direct people's assembly and Wakefield an avid support of the French Revolution. It isn't surprising that being around these intellectuals that Malthus later enjoyed notoriety. Malthus was later educated at Cambridge University and upon graduation he became a curate. In 1798 he published a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population which Ralph will delve a little deeper into. Uh, yeah of course uh, with um, absolute pleasure. Um, definitely um, a very interesting book. An Essay on the Principle of Population and Malfusionism, a very um, long book title so in effect, Malfusionism and Neo-Malfusionism, so that is more modern-day Malfusionism, which is a theory, relies on a theory that food supply is unable to keep up with the demand created by a growing population, such that eventually a Malfusion trap forms, whereby higher living standards are choked off by there being a larger population. So, suppose suddenly there is an economic windfall, where a new plot of arable land is, is discovered. This then allows there to be a temporary boost in the overall food supply, which first allows for more food per capita. Having a greater amount of food per person then supposedly encourages the people typically in the lower classes to reproduce according to Malthus. So definitely very, um, in modern day, probably somewhat of a, a regressive theory if you were to read it today. So more people also supposedly reproduce in this situation as the people become healthier, which then causes death rate to fall. However, Food production cannot be sustained to keep up with the growing population, according to Malthus. This then enables for there to be higher prices, so that is inflation, due to the fact that demand now far outstrips food supplies. So you may, uh, our listeners here, you may have studied uh, what's called demand pull inflation, which is where effectively is a load of demand which then bumps up prices, which is what it is. The population in question has now fallen into what is known as a malfusion trap, or a malfusion spectre, if you want to make it sound slightly more terrifying. Uh, the inflation caused by rising prices has caused individuals within the population to have a lower purchasing power, which then leads to economic, economic stagnation, which is commonly known for a plateau or decline in living standards. Uh, so overall, the basic theory of malfusionism is that effectively population will far outstrip the food supply, causing a malfusion trap, where then living standards 
uh, they stagnate and decline. So, Aman, would you like to go into the mathematics behind the Malthusian trap now? Absolutely. Now, the power of Malthus, um, in many ways, in retrospect to perhaps previous economists that we've covered or, or economists that may have predated his time, is the, is the fact that he used the power of maths. He used the power of quantified data to, you know, to, to, to provide backing to his assumptions and theories. Um, and in many ways, linking to this idea of the Malthusian trap, it's this idea that maths was in many ways the backing behind this theory um, and, and the backing behind the way in which he portrayed and, and, and shared this idea with the rest of the world. Now, food supply growth, according to Malthus, um, was, was said to follow arithmetic growth. Um, so if you can imagine food sort of supply against time, what you can imagine is it being a, a linear function against time. Um, so it would follow a graph in many ways following the, sort of the standard equation of a line that, that many the listeners out there studying maths would uh, sort of describe as y equals mx plus c, uh, where m is the gradient and c is the y-intercept. And this was said to exist because there is only a certain amount of land available. There's only a certain amount of food that's able to be farmed. Moreover, sort of each labor unit when added to a new plot of land eventually causes the incremental increase in output uh, to gradually decrease. Um, this sort of spans into more sort of microeconomic ways of thinking uh, when looking at the more sort of diminishing marginal returns um, element of, of, of production on, on a much more microeconomic level. Um, the availability of land and the increase in labor um, thus caused the food supply to only increase through a linear function, um, increasing at a steady, constant and fixed rate. Um, capital and enterprise here, although we, we must understand, are not mentioned, uh, despite being two of the four factors of production, um, as Malthus didn't really acknowledge them in his theory. Um, this is due to, in many ways, because Malthus's theory was written prior um, to the Industrial Revolution and the growth of capital in, in many ways as a significant factor of production. Um, so acknowledging the fact that food is increasing through this linear function, population on the other hand increases via a geometric function, almost exponentially increasing as opposed to the much slower, much gradual linear increase that we associate with food supply. Um, and this is really sort of down to um, a, an assumption that, that Malthus makes um, that sort of temporary increases in food supply allegedly incentivize breeding and reproduction. Um, so as a result, um, it, with, with both this sort of relationship between this linear function and this geometric function, population always far outstrips food supply in the economy. Um, now, I think, Kari, you're going to be covering the, the next topic on neo-Malthusians. A more modern approach to Malthus's theory can be found from neo-Malthusians who are concerned more with environmental degradation as well as famine. They strongly advocate the use of contraception to control population, admitting that Malthus failed to recognize the potential of technology as well as the increase in contraception in society. They also look at thing, uh, how things um, indirectly lead to the risk of famine. Let's take malaria, for example. The better the treatment of malaria, the more children will survive. This will lead to an increase in the number of mouths to feed, which results in an increase in malnutrition and famine. A recent study by Brown University in the US found that it is not economically profitable to treat malaria as the incidence of malnourishment increases. This inevitably forms a moral dilemma, but neo-Malthusians argue that we shouldn't attempt to reduce the death rate of malaria uh, because of the results in malnourishment. So I think we're moving on to some controversies with Malthus, um, starting with Ralph. I think it is quite clear that with 
Malthus's theories that, you know, he did definitely attract some notoriety. And, you know, I think you can see with the intellectuals that he was introduced to at a young age, so Rousseau, Wakefield, and also Hume, that he would probably develop some controversial views in his time and would definitely, I guess, you know, showcase those views quite evidently to the public. <clears throat> so um, the first of his controversies, which I'm going to go through now, is that this isn't so much Malthus himself, but I think the way his theories have been used. So many of you would have heard of people like um, Marx, who are also very famous intellectuals, and the controversies very much arise of not, you know, maybe the intellectual himself, but the way the theories are used. So if Marx, obviously, communism was used to an extent by the Soviet Union, which obviously had a lot of controversies. So Malthus kind of falls into a similar camp here. So uh, but other than Marx, his theories were not to do with anything to do with communism, they were to do with, obviously, the theories we've discussed. So Malthus' ideas have been used to justify various famines throughout history, such as the uh, Madras famine and the Irish potato famine. So uh, the, mass, the Madras famine arguably could have, been, uh, could have originated from Malthus' teachings at the East India Company College. This is because it was here that he taught political economy to those who would eventually work for the British East India Company. So... Here we have two very key famines that the British government effectively justified using Malthusian theory by basically saying, look, if we feed these people, they're going to reproduce and, you know, living standards will stagnate. So is there any point to doing so? And obviously that is, these are very awful events in history, um, which are definitely important to read through. Um, so that's the first controversy. Uh, Aman, would you like to go over the second controversy, please? Yeah, so Malthusian controversies did not end there. Uh, Malthus and another economist, Ricardo, who we will be covering very shortly uh, in this episode, disagreed on the definitions and impacts of economic rent. Um, economic rent is defined as any payment made to the owner of a factor of production in excess of the cost of that factor of production. Uh, Malthus thought that economic rent was a type of economic surplus, uh, whereas Ricardo thought that economic rent was kind of negative money that was pulled out of production. Um, so Malthus was, was very much known for both perhaps creating friendships, but also creating arguments and disputes with economists of his day. Um, and with that, it, so Malthus has, has really sort of adopted and, and, and has been characterized um, by, this, by this quite disputed and, and controversial image, um, which even in sort of academic circles today, um, is considered to add to his sort of more pessimistic and much more controversial and radical ways of economic thinking. Um, Cara, I believe that you're going to proceed with the final controversy of Malthus. Yeah, so another concept that caused conflict, you could say, between Malthus and Ricardo was corn laws. So these were laws put in place to stimulate the production of corn and other cereals by raising tariffs on foreign imports, this being a common example of protectionism. As you can imagine, Ricardo was opposed to this law as he knew that it would result in higher cereal prices for consumers, believing that this would have regressive effects, essentially that it would harm low-income families the most who rely on cheap cereals. Ricardo also thought that these laws would increase the price of land as there would be a greater demand for the land um, for corn and cereals to be grown on. He perceived this as an issue as it would be taking the money out of the economy and feeding it into the pockets of the already rich landlords. However, Malthus supported the laws as he believed that having protectionist measures, um, Britain would be encouraged to become more self-sufficient with its food supply 
ultimately delaying his um, effects of population growth. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's all we have on uh, on Malthus there. And I think um, I, I think just to give the listeners a little takeaway on Malthus before we move on to Ricardo, but I think Malthus overall, although his theories are let's say more aggressive than ones that we will cover later in this series, I think um, they are important to note. And I think it is important to and interesting to see his theories develop over time. And I think one thing I found interesting about researching Malthus was the fact his theories are very logical, but uh, and I think that's one thing that's interesting, personally. Um, so I'd encourage anyone listening to the podcast to go and search Malthus for themselves and I think make up your own mind about him. You know, we've offered an unbiased view here relatively, and I think um, I, I would be encouraging to see people, you know, research him and develop a view on him. So now we're going on to David Ricardo. So, um, Aman, would you like to give a bit of um, background about Ricardo, uh, if you could? So um, David Ricardo was born in 1772 in London, England, um, dying on September the 11th in 1823 in Gloucestershire. Um, now, David Ricardo was an English economist who gave, in many ways, a systematized classical form to the rising science of economics in the 19th century. Um, so economics was in, very much on its way up here from um, its initial gestation, should we say, from the times of Adam Smith. Um, and so Ricardo's laissez-faire doctrines were typified um, in his sort of main book, which is The Iron Law of Wages, uh, which stated that all attempts to improve the real income of workers were futile and that wages perforce would remain near the subsistence level. So Ricardo was the third son uh, born to a family of Sephardic Jews who had emigrated from the Netherlands to England. And, you know, he was a child prodigy uh, in every sense of the word. You know, at the age of 14, he entered into business with his father, um, who had made a fortune on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, by the time he was 21, um, he actually fell out with his father over sort of much more trivial, say, religious grounds. Um, he became a Unitarian um, and married a Quaker, um, drifting from his, his sort of Jewish origins. Um, he continued as a member of the Stock Exchange, and this is where his talents and character won him the support of an eminent banking house. He did so well um, that in a few years he acquired a fortune, um, and this really sort of allowed him to pursue interest in literature and science, um, namely um, not in economics to begin with, in, but, but instead in sort of the more mathematics, chemistry and geology side of things. Um, Ricardo's interest in economics, however, rose in 1799 when he read the famous book that we covered last episode, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, um, by, by obviously by Adam Smith. Um, and for 10 years, he studied economics. He became enthralled by it. Um, although initially he was studying it in slightly offhanded manner, um, he began to eventually study it with greater concentration. Um, his first published works were The High Price of Bullion, um, A Proof of the Depreciation of Banknotes, which came in 1810. Um, and really sort of an outgrowth of letters Ricardo had published in the Morning Chronicle of the year before also became a, a very popular outlet of his. Um, his book refueled the controversy that was then sort of resounding the, the Bank of England, uh, which sort of freed from the necessity of cash payment, um, in many ways the strains associated with the wars that England was having at France with that time, um, sort of in many ways linked to its controversy with um, sort of the paying, paying notes with gold at that point in time, printing money and using um, gold bullions to do so. Um, both sort of the Bank of England and rural banks had increased their note issues and their volume of their lending. Um, and Ricardo was really one of the people to speak out against this. Um, and, and in many ways, this was this is remnants of the first sort of cases of, um, of, of inflation due to the growth of the money supply. Whilst sort of Ricardo began to grow in the economic sphere, he began to acquire friends um, who influenced his further intellectual development. 
One of these is James Mill, the father of the philosopher J.S. Mill, um, who we could sort of cover in a later episode. Um, and this actually, and, and, and James Mill actually became his political and editorial counsellor. Um, another friend uh, was um, Jeremy Bentham, um, the key utilitarian philosopher. And another uh, was Thomas Malthus, who we just covered. Um, later, um, sort of in the principles of political economy and taxation, which Ricardo wrote in about 1817, Ricardo analysed the laws determining the distribution of everything, um, in many ways the laws that really lie at the foundation of economics, um, and he noticed that they could, they could essentially be attributed to three classes of the community, um, namely the landlords who owned the land, the workers who tilled the land, and the owners of capital, who provided these tangible assets to produce goods and services, to the landlords. And really as part of this sort of theory of distribution, he concluded that profits vary inversely with wages. Um, and this is something that we can later see perhaps in the works of, um, you know, A.W. Phillips when it comes to the Phillips curve, um, which sort of rise and fall in the line of the cost of necessities. Ricardo also determined that rent tends to increase as population grows, owing to the higher costs of cultivating more food for the larger population. He supposed that there was little tendencies to unemployment, but he remained guarded against the rapid population growth that could depress wages to the subsistence level, uh, which would thereby limit both profit um, and capital formation by extending the margin of cultivation. He also concluded um, that trade between countries was influenced by relative costs of production and that differences in, turn, in sort of internal price structures could maximize the comparative advantage of these countries. So in many ways it's linking to the much more pessimistic, controversial works associated with Malthus, um, despite perhaps dis disputes that they may sort of have had with each other. Um, although he built this in part of, sort of built this upon his studies of, of, of Smith's work, he defined the scope of economics more narrowly than Smith ever had. Um, and he included sort of more social philosophy um, and much more philosophical elements into his work than were initially present. In 1819, Ricardo purchased a seat in the House of Commons, um, as was done in those times, and entered Parliament as a, as a member for uh, Portlington. Um, he wasn't a frequent speaker, uh, but so great was his reputation in economic affairs that his opinion on free trade uh, were received with respect. And this, in many ways, lends itself to the theory of comparative advantage, uh, which will be discussed later. Just despite his sort of relatively short career and the fact that most of it was preoccupied with business affairs, Ricardo achieved a leading position amongst the economists of his time. His views won considerable support in England, despite the abstract sort of style in which he had set them forth. Um, and you'll notice this abstractism when it comes to our sort of depiction of the comparative advantage theory of trade. Um, and sort of in the face of heavy counterfire from his opponents, he did stand strong. Although his ideas have long since been sort of superseded or perhaps modified by other work and new theoretical approaches, Ricardo retains his eminence as the thinker who first systematized economics, making it a form, giving it, giving it its structure. Um, he also treated monetary questions and taxation at length. Writers of, sort of various persuasions drew heavily upon his ideas, including those who favored laissez-faire capitalism and those such as the German philosopher and economist Karl Marx, which Ralph mentioned earlier, and the British social sort of reformer, Robert Owen, who opposed it. Um, now I believe that Ralph, you're going to go and introduce the theory of comparative advantage of trade. Uh, yeah, with pleasure. Um... I know um, you mentioned there, man, that you you know back in those days you could buy a seat in the House of Commons. I'm pretty sure some of our more ideological listeners would have a point of say on that today. Um, but anyway, um, let's get down to business, I guess. And I think also um, another brief word. I know there's this really good book called The Worldly Philosophers. So if you do want to look more into these economists, such as Robert Owen, that's a really good book to read. It's by 
I think Robert Heilbrunner, really good book, and I would recommend it. But anyway, let's um, let's get down to the business of comparative advantage. So um, comparative advantage compared to the mechanicalist theory of absolute advantage. So mechanicalist theory is kind of like um, we need to be self-sufficient. We need as much wealth as possible. So we need to import more than we export. That's effectively what it is. Um, so a comparative advantage was first developed by David Ricardo, as we've just um, as a man just went into detail talking about. So effectively, comparative advantage discusses the relative opportunity costs of trade and producing goods. So effectively, it's kind of like the costs in terms of the other goods given up. So for example, if I produce a car, how many umbrellas can I not produce, for example? That's kind of like roughly what it is. Um, but obviously, this is using the same commodities among countries, so cars, for example. So effectively, in Ricardo's theory, which was based on the labor theory of value, so in effect, making labor the only factor of production. So if I bought a good for £10, that is the direct cost of labor. So there are other theories, labor, there are other theories of value, such as a subjective, and we'll cover them in the future. So the fact that one country could produce everything more efficiently than another was not an argument against international trade. Simply, comparative advantage can be defined as when a country can produce a product at a lower opportunity cost than another country. They have a relative advantage in producing that product. So effectively, when a country can produce a product at a lower opportunity cost, uh, they have a relative advantage in producing that product. So Akara, would you like to continue talking about comparative advantage for us? Yeah, of course. So to help understand um, the concept, we can explain it through an example between countries. Country A and country B producing two goods, good X and good Y. So if country A must give up three units of good X for every unit of good Y produced, and country B must give up only two units of, of good X for every unit of good Y, both countries would benefit if country B specialised in the production of good Y and country A specialised in the production of good X. B could then exchange one unit of Y for between two and three units of X. Before trade, country B would only have two units of X and country A could receive between one third and one half units of Y. Before trade, country A would only have one third unit of Y for every unit of X. This is true even though B um, may be absolutely less efficient than A in the production of both commodities. The theory of comparative advantage provides a strong argument in, the favor of, in favor of free trade and specialization among countries. However, the issue is that the theory is rarely upheld in reality as it is heavily based upon assumptions which may not hold true in practice and can distort the theory of comparative advantage. So these assumptions being no transport costs, no barriers to trade, constant returns to scale, perfect mobility of resources between uses. So um, within country A, uh, the resources or the factors of production can switch from producing X to Y with no opportunity costs. Um, and that buyers and consumers have perfect knowledge. So to take transport costs, for example, uh, the the cost of transport may actually outweigh the benefit of comparative advantage, thus making it um, useless in reality. Uh, despite these limitations, many economists still support the view that free trade brings net benefits to the global economy.
So I think that's um, a brief introduction into Ricardo's work, a brief introduction into comparative advantage, um, and also giving you an overview on Malthus's work. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, obviously a very good um, a bit on Ricardo there, I think. Um, I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode of The Free Marketeers. Uh, please follow our Instagram. Um, and also, we have an exciting announcement with the fact that we have produced a newsletter under Econoworld with some of the people we work with. And, you know, it's about the US elections. It's about all the impacts of various things in US politics. And it's a very interesting read. I know I read it the other night and I found it certainly quite interesting. So if you could follow our socials and follow and have a read of the newsletter, that would be amazing. And we'll see you next time on The Free Marketeers. Thank you.